Let's pray one more time together before we dive into the text of Scripture today. Let's pray one more time for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for yet another glorious opportunity to gather together as your people, to gather in this place as your church, and to declare in a corporate way what you have done by sending your Son and gathering a people and making us worshipers that worship you in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Thank you, Lord, for the glorious things of which we sung. We pray that you would continue that chorus now as we go through your word. We pray that this would be worship to our souls, that our, as, we, as we go through your word, that our, our hearts would be enraptured in, in, in great praise and worship, worship of the mind, Lord, for you commanded us to worship you with all our heart, with all our soul, our strength, and mind. And so, Lord, help us now to engage our mind in the text of Scripture and to see wonderful things from your law. I pray that you would produce the reality that we sang of today in all of those glorious songs, that we would be the type of men, the type of women that can say, with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That we could say, Christ is our life. And that our life is wrapped up and hidden in Him. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing now on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, Well, we are uh, back on this same passage of Scripture today. Hebrews 7, verses 15 to 19, and what I've entitled, The Supremacy of the Hope of Jesus' Priesthood. This is really the second part of that. And we're looking now at... Uh, really the, the reason or the basis of why it is that you and I can draw near to God. And so I'm really zeroing in on that, that verse that says, in the beginning in verse 19 there, it says that uh, there is a better hope that has been brought in through which we draw near to God. Now the reason I stopped there in the exposition is because if you know anything about the Old Testament To draw near to God is the height of religion. It is the very essence of what it means to know God, to be in union with God, in communion with God, in fellowship with God, to be near to God. And you know that every time somebody got near to God in the Bible, um, really miraculous things took place and epiphanies took place and epiphanic phenomena took place. In other words, there was fear that was inspired by the idea that you were in the presence of God. So you think of, for example, Isaiah. Uh, When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in his holy temple, and he saw that he was in the presence of God, he says, I am undone. I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people with unclean lips. And now I have seen the Lord. And so every time someone stepped into the presence of God, was in the, uh, drew near to God, their flesh trembled. And that's what we're really looking at here, the basis of why we can draw near to God. Well, Hebrews is going to give us several reasons why, but uh, let me just 
go back a minute and remind you that what we're looking at here is the supremacy of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus as a priest superior to that which came in the past? Well, there, uh, Hebrews has given us several reasons why. Let me just contrast the two priesthoods. On the one hand, when you look at the Old Covenant, you had priests that were sinners. You had priests that needed atonement for their own sin as a symbol of the imperfection of their priesthood. Uh, the priests needed to offer sins or offer uh, sacrifices continually, repeatedly, perpetually. There was an endless succession of priests because the duty was never done. The Old Testament sacrifices were also inferior because of what they consisted of. It was blood of bulls and goats, and it was animal blood. And animal blood can never take away sin because it can never secure redemption. It's another reason why it was inferior. Furthermore, because of the, animal, the, 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 the blood that was utilized, it could never cleanse the conscience. Now, I've got verses for every single one of these points, but I thought, well, okay, I, would, I don't want to drag you down into every single reference, but there is a reference for every single one of these things in the book of Hebrews. For example, chapter 7, verse 8 pointed out the fact that these are mortal men that are mediating for you. They're mortal men, which means mortal intercessors. You had priests that went between you and God who were mortal and were going to die. And they would not return, and therefore their intercession would end. These priests and their intercession was temporary. Now, contrast that with Jesus. Jesus was sinless. Jesus was a righteous priest. He had all the righteousness that was required before God. He did not need to make atonement for his own sin. His sacrifice was not a perpetual sacrifice or a repeated sacrifice. It was a once-for-all sacrifice that removed our sin. His blood is perfect blood. It is the kind of blood that cleanses our conscience from dead works it is the kind of blood that secures our redemption, the precious blood of Jesus. Peter tells us we were purchased, we were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. In other words, the blood of Jesus is priceless. The blood of Jesus is perfect. The blood of Jesus is infinite in its value. Why? Because it can secure your redemption and it can cleanse your conscience, your soul. It could cleanse that subconscious level of you, that subconscious aspect of you. The soul inside of you is cleansed. There's an internal cleansing that comes from the priesthood of Jesus that could never come from the Old Testament priest. Jesus, consequently, lives forever. That's really what we're looking at here. He lives forever, and therefore, his intercession never ends. Isn't that glorious? We do not have a priest who is going to die and then not return. Our priest returned. Our priest rose again and so that he has an indestructible life. Now, let me bring us to this issue of drawing near and the basis of it. If you would, before we go to Hebrews, turn with me to 1 Peter 1 Peter chapter 3, because as I mentioned, the whole purpose 
of Christianity is not just to make you a better person. It's not just to make you more moral in the sense of you stop doing bad things and now you do good things. You stop watching the bad movies and the bad entertainment and now you watch the clean, moral, Christian entertainment. That is not the purpose of Christianity. The purpose of Christianity ultimately is to bring you to God, to bring you in contact with your maker. Look at uh, 1 Peter 3, beginning of verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Notice the parallel there, the parallel language that's used there with the book of Hebrews. Remarkable parallels between Peter and Hebrews, by the way. He says, says, the just for the unjust. And this is the purpose clause, so that he might bring us to God. You see that? Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which He went on and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. In other words, speaking of the victory of the Son of God over the demonic powers, but the emphasis is on bringing us to God. There is no higher goal for man. What is man made for? Man is made for God. That's why we live for God. That's why we we think the thoughts of God after Him. That's why we have a Christian worldview. It's not so that we can fit in with people that have conferences or movements that have a Christian worldview. It's because all of life is being brought into conformity to the God with whom we will reside with for all eternity. That's why we are what we are in Christ. We are being prepared for God. That's why the Bible calls us His possession. We are his inheritance, the Bible says. And now we draw near to God, not on our own basis. Remember, man is sinful. God is holy. Man can never earn the righteousness that God requires in order to be brought near to him. Therefore, man on his own two feet, we could say, is not acceptable before God. So you read the law, you read Leviticus, you read Numbers, you read all the cultists' passages, which mean, uh, means that uh, they're referring to the rituals of Israel. And what is it all for? It is to make the worshiper acceptable. That's what it's for. That's what the Day of Atonement is for. That's what the peace offering is for. That's what the meal offering is for. That's what all the symbols of the Old Covenant are for, to make sinful man acceptable before God. Because on his own, he is absolutely not acceptable before God, and therefore, he has no access to God. No access. He's in utter darkness. I think of all the mass of humanity, brothers and sisters, and you think of all the, the failed worldviews of our world. You think of all the false religions, the false spiritualities. You think of the two billion Muslims on planet Earth that bow five times a day in the direction of Mecca, and they are praying to a pagan deity. And they're praying to nothing, and they're in utter darkness, and they have no access to God. And neither does anyone else who is not washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus that makes him fit and righteous and makes him prepared and makes him upright and makes him acceptable before the God of holiness. That's what this is all predicated upon. 
The reason why we need access to God is because God is holy. And as a holy God, he cannot bear to be in the presence of iniquity. He is of holier eyes, Job says, than to look upon sin. And so we need to be cleansed because we're sinners. (laughs) We're sinners. And maybe on the way to church this morning, you were reminded of your sin. (laughs) Happens a lot, you know, on the way to church, spiritual warfare, your flesh perks up, and, you know, out comes the old man. And you're about to come in here and get condemned for the things you did on the way here. Now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. (laughs) Let's look at the first reason. We draw near to God on the basis of Jesus' indestructible life. On the basis of Jesus' indestructible life. That is what the passage says after all. Beginning back at verse 15, look with me. It says, and this is clear still. So when he says this is clear still, that means there's a little break in the action here. There's another argument coming. One of the things that's so difficult about the book of Hebrews, well, two things. Number one, it is the hardest Greek uh, vocabulary in the New Testament. Number two, because the thought is so interlinked and so intertwined that anywhere that you cut it off is a bad place to cut it off because you're cutting it off midstream. The author has more to say, but we got to stop somewhere. We'll be here for four-hour sermons. I would be okay with that, but I don't think you would be okay with that. But he says, and this is clear still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. And so we draw near to God, first and foremost, because the life of Jesus is indestructible. Now, what is the contrast? What is he contrasting this to? Well, there's three things that we should point out here. You remember, there's three things. Of course, beginning with the likeness of Melchizedek. We spent week after week after week pointing out one overarching idea about Melchizedek, and that is that his genealogy cannot be traced. But to an infinite and a greater degree, the genealogy genealogy of Jesus cannot be traced. That is, to Levi. And in fact, it is traced to Judah. Because he comes from the line of David. And so remember the language that he uses here in verse 15. This language of a priest arising. That went back to what he said earlier earlier in terms of another priest, verse 11, that arises according to the order of Melchizedek. And I made a whole lot, I made a a big stink out of that word arise because it's not the normal word that you use about descending from someone. It is a Septuagint word, meaning it's a word that goes back to the Old Testament in Greek and it's used of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, to refer to the fact that he is the descendant of David, the righteous branch, the the morning star of Jacob that will arise for his people. And the author of Hebrews very perceptively using that very special, uh, that very unique word to trigger in our minds, the branch of David is here, the root of Jesse. And this is remarkable. If you go to the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus himself wraps it all up with going back to these messianic prophecies that were spoken of him. This is um, Revelation 22, 16. After man and God have already been united, after we have truly, fully 
consummately draw near to God, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, I, Jesus, I have sent my angel to testify to you of these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And that goes back to Numbers chapter 24, where it says, a star will arise from Jacob. It's speaking of the, about the Messiah, folks. The other reason why he has these credentials and the reason why it is on the basis of his indestructible life is because of the contrast here. Uh, we could say these are sort of credentials of Jesus. Number one, he comes in the likeness of Melchizedek. Number two, look at the phrase here back in Hebrews. It is, on the basis, it is not on the basis of the law of physical requirement. In other words, the very thing that was expected of all Levitical priests cannot be applied to Jesus Christ. He is not bound to the law of physical requirement, which means it is not necessary for us to know the genealogy of Jesus and trace it back to Levi because what he showed us earlier in the exposition, you remember, is that actually the Levitical priesthood is subservient to the Melchizedekian priesthood. Remember? Abraham, it says, if you go back to chapter 7, verse 5, it says there, uh, that Abraham, or actually verse 4, observe now how great this man was, that's Melchizedek, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Why is that important? Well, that is important because, look at verse 9, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father Abraham, that is, when Melchizedek met him. All of that language is doing what? It is taking the Levitical priesthood of Israel and making it subservient to the Melchizedekian priesthood, which is the priesthood that Jesus is officiating by. He says it is not according to the law of physical requirement. Actually, the, the word that's used there, sarkines, just literally means that which is fleshy. It's actually a very crude way of putting it. The author is trying to stress the inferiority of it. The inferiority of it. Now, the third thing is this, explicitly now. Not only does he come in the, in the likeness of Melchizedek, not only is he uh, not uh, categorized according to the law of physical requirement, but thirdly, the third credential is explicitly that it is according to the power of an indestructible life. According to the power of an indestructible life. See, Jesus, Jesus sets, he opens up a way for us to draw near to God on the basis of the quality of his life. And the reason that's so important, folks, is because we have a priest that never stops officiating at the altar of God before God on our behalf. So we always have, look down to chapter 7, verse 25, we always have this priest that is always working for us. Verse 25 says, uh, he says, therefore, he is also able to save forever those that draw near to God through him since he always lives. There's the indestructible life. He always lives to make intercession for them. So 
Unlike the Old Testament priests, this endless succession of priests, mortal men that constantly died, they came and went, and God did it that way so that in the imperfect system of the Old Covenant, we would be looking for something better. But that's exactly what it says in Hebrews here. He has given us what? A better hope. Verse 19 and then he'll go on to say in verse 22, he is the guarantee of a better covenant. So we look now to the Old Testament example of the priesthood and the imperfections of the priesthood as a means by which we look for something better. And so how do we preach the Old Testament now? Now that we're being told the good stuff is in the New Testament, right? Well, that's not how we do it. We go to the Old Testament and we see the types and shadows. And now that we know what those types and shadows are about, we can preach all of those Old Testament passages Christologically through Christ. Christ as the center. Christ as the goal. Christ as the aim of it all. And so when you're trudging through the genealogies, you're going down the meticulous instructions of how to build the tabernacle, your message better be about Jesus so that you don't bore people to death with just a simple historical narrative of the account. You preach it the way that it's meant to be preached, that those things are a mere copy, they're a mere shadow, they're a mere type, they're just a prefigure for Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, what he has done for us. He doesn't have to meet the law of physical requirement because he lives on. Not even the cross put an end to Jesus' indestructible life. Folks, two things happen at the cross. Number one, Jesus made an end of sin. Look at Hebrews 10, 14. I could just read it to you. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering... That's the cross. He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's why he goes on to explain. Now, if you go back to Hebrews 7, verse 23, he kind of explains exactly what he's talking about there. He says, the former priests, in Hebrews 7, 23, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater number. There was a multiplicity of priests. Why? Because... They were prevented by death from continuing. See, death was a hindrance for mortal men. This is a very strong uh, contrast in verse 24. This is called a, uh, this is called a, uh, uh, um, oh boy, the word is escaping me right now. This is a strong adversative. In other words, this is a big time contrast coming here. Very emphatic here. But Jesus, that's, what the, that's the climax of the sermon at this point. But Jesus, something different now. On the other hand, because He, Jesus, continues forever, He holds His priesthood permanently. We don't look for any other priests. Talk about He is enough. We're talking about the sufficiency of the priesthood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need nothing else. This is where Catholicism has it all wrong when they say that the priest at the altar is an altar Christus, meaning he is another Christ standing in our place, officiating the Mass, re-sacrificing again Jesus at the altar. That is blasphemy. 
Because Jesus is not re-sacrificed ever, 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 ever. And there is no other Christs who stand as a mediator for God and man. We is, there's one mediator between God and man, right? That's what Timothy says. There is one mediator between God and man. Never, ever, ever spiritually be in a position of dependence that you need to get to God through this individual, this person, this group, this movement, this counselor, this whatever, this book. Without this, I can't get to God. No! You have direct access through the only mediator that you need, Jesus Christ, directly to the throne of God. You have as much access to God now as Jesus does. Think about that. Turn with me to chapter 2 of Hebrews. Hebrews. Actually, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. To show you this, that he has gone before us, see? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. See, he has passed through the heavens. And we're also told, if I can find the verse, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 20, they go together. Jesus, he's a forerunner, but you got to have chapter 4, verse 14, because where's he running? Where is he running? He is running through the heavens, right? You could just see him ascending on that day, being lifted up from his people. And where does he go? He doesn't go into the sky. He doesn't go into the atmosphere. He doesn't go into space. He doesn't go into the far recesses of the universe. He goes into the heavens. He passes through all of the physical dimensions of this world and into a different dimension, heaven. And he does it for you in two ways, meaning it's part of the way that he's going to save you, and it's, he does it uh, as, a, as, a, as a model for you to follow. You too will go through the heavens one day. You may not ascend. Well, of course, I guess if the rapture happens, but let's not get to eschatology because this is all we need right here. Chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner, watch this, for us, when it says forerunner, it means he's our captain, our leader, our trailblazer. He's the one that we follow. We follow him wherever he leads. And where is he leading? He is leading into the holy place, within the veil, into the presence of God. He drew near to God. And because he drew near to God, you will draw near to God too. It's almost too much to believe. John MacArthur wrote a book called Hard to Believe. You know, I would follow that up and I would say, impossible to believe unless God gives you the grace to believe it. This is too much. This is impossible, incredible, unthinkable. But it's true. It's true because it's based on the word of Almighty God. That when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't the end of his life. He was bringing life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse, I think it's verse 46. He became a life-giving spirit. Think of that. 
When Jesus was separated from his body, he became a life-giving soul, spirit. He imparted life through death because he was still alive. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? The second thing that happens at the cross was not only was Jesus making an end of our sin, but Jesus was also being the God was rewarding his son Jesus because of what he did on the cross. It was a reward that transpired after the cross, through the resurrection. This is how he gets this indestructible life. Where does this language of the indestructible life of the Messiah come from? Well, may I suggest to you that it comes from passages like this. Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering... Now, I looked the Hebrew up there, and the, the, uh, the conditional clause is there. If he would render himself a guilt offering, and of course he would, okay? He would. Don't lose me now, okay? He says, <clears throat> he will see his offspring, and watch this, he will prolong his days. Isn't that glorious? It's speaking of the resurrection quality of Jesus' life after the cross. That if he put himself as an offering for sin on the cross, as a reward, the Father will give and grant to Jesus, what? Prolonged days, which is just a way of saying endless days, an indestructible life, a resurrection body, a glorious exaltation, the vindication of all of his labors. And and notice, We're drawn into that. We're drawn into that. He will see his offspring. Spiritual children will emerge from his offering himself as a guilt offering because he offered himself for them. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. But there are numerous, 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 numerous texts. Isaiah 9, verse 7, uh, Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, uh, Psalm 89, verse 29, the covenant with the Messiah is there. And so what uh, theologians have done with all of this language is they say, oh, what this is showing us is that the Father and the Son have agreed to certain uh, to certain duties, if you would, they have they have a, each they ha- they have each a role that they play in redemption. Here, turn with me to John 17, because what this is theologically speaking about is what is known as the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. This is a this is a a, a covenant that took place in eternity past, if we can use that language that took place in eternity past, and it's an intra-Trinitarian covenant. It is, it is not a covenant between God and man. It is a covenant between the members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, where they agree, they covenant together, they make a pact of salutis, as they say, a pact of salvation, a pact of redemption, or, as it has come to be known, the covenant of redemption where the Son agrees to do a certain part, the Father agrees to do a certain part, and the Spirit agrees to do a certain part, and they all have perfect Trinitarian harmony. There is no disharmony in the Trinity. I feel compelled to have to show you that. John 17, verses 1 through 5. 
The reason why I bring this text in here is for two reasons. Not only does it show us uh, and substantiate this covenant of redemption language, but it also is a parallel to Hebrews in this way, that John 17 is also talking about Jesus' priestly duties, just like Hebrews. This is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And listen to what Jesus is praying. He says, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, the hour there in verse uh, 1, that word, the hour, it's not just Jesus looking down at his watch and saying, oh, it's time. (laughs) Actually, hurrah in the Gospel of John, the hour, is a technical term to, to, to refer to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is saying, Father, that hour is here. Because moments after this prayer, folks, moments after this prayer, Jesus is going to the cross. And this is what is on the heartbeat of the Son of God as he goes to the cross. Father, Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Watch that exchange there. Don't miss it. Inter-Trinitarian exchange. The Son glorifying the Father. The Father glorifying the Son. And then later in chapter 16, or earlier in chapter 16, we're already told that the Son is going to, or the Spirit is going to glorify the Son. So this is fully Trinitarian. He says, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, That's an awesome verse, isn't it, in a world that seems completely out of control? Jesus Christ has authority over all flesh. Don't let the culture and the headlines kick you off kilter from that. He has authority over all flesh. He says, to do all, uh, to, to all whom you have given him, that he may give them, that is, eternal life. This is eternal life. That, you may, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth. Watch this. Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. When did the Father give to the Son the work that needed to be done? I would submit to you that he, give it, he gave it to him in his pre-existent form. Just keep reading. He says... Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, watch this, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So this is an interesting insight into the consciousness of Jesus Christ. Prior to going to the cross, we get to see, we get to hear, we get to eavesdrop on what was racing through his mind. And what was racing through the mind of the Son of God is the agreement the eternal agreement that he had with the Father prior to time beginning. And he is saying, it is done. I have completed it. Now turn to Hebrews, or excuse me, turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 1 first, just for a moment. I promise not to preach a whole verse out of this, or not a, a whole sermon out of this passage, but it's very difficult to restrain myself. I've got to be honest. So I think we'll go to Ephesians after Hebrews, but this is so rich, so much in my heart. I just want people to get this. But there you see, so I'll just outline it for you, that there is never any disharmony in the Trinity whatsoever. Uh, Verses 3 down to verse 6. 
That is referring to the work of the Father. The Father has chosen, predestined, and adopted us in Christ. Verse 7 to 12 is the work of the Son. The work the, the Son redeems us, He forgives us, He, 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 he dies for us, however you want to put that, right? He does all of these things, and then He does that in harmony, by the way, with the Father. Not in disharmony, but in harmony with the Father. And in verse 13 to 14, it is the ministry of the Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit, working in perfect conjunction, perfect harmony. To do what? To accomplish the plan of redemption. That is what Jesus has done. He's fulfilled all these things, but let me give you the next basis of why we draw near to God. Because He has also fulfilled the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. Look at what it says there in verse 18. For in addition to these things, it says, there is on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. Now, I, you know, I got to commend you. The book of Hebrews is not easy. It's not easy to exposit, and it's not easy to follow along in the exposition. And I probably make it harder than it is, so you're doubly troubled now. But it is technical. There are all these categories and all these, this huge spectrum of theology that you've got to cover in order to understand Hebrews. No wonder R.C. Sproul says, if there's one book in the whole Bible I can take with me on a deserted island, it is Hebrews. Because it covers so much theology and doctrine. But here we are told explicitly that there is a setting aside of the former commandment. What does this mean other than there is a setting aside of the old covenant and, there, and then there is, look at verse 19, then there is a bringing in of a better hope. That's the new covenant. So here, this is a, a transition. So here we're seeing the covenantal transition of Scripture. We're going from old to new in these verses. And it's glorious because it's better. But here the author describes the law, the old covenant, as weak, and watch this, useless. Now we've got to be careful with that language not to say, well, does that mean something like the Ten Commandments is useless now? No, of course not. But in the context of Hebrews, what it's saying is, is that the old covenant is weak and useless. Why? Because it made nothing perfect. You remember? That's what he says. And that's what he's going to say. Look at verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. Now, in the book of Hebrews, circle the word perfect. Underline that word. And go through the book of Hebrews and look up everywhere where the word perfect is mentioned. Because that's crucial to understand the theology of Hebrews. What does it mean, perfection? What does it mean it made nothing perfect? What was the deficiency? Well, here, I believe that he's essentially saying the same thing that Paul would say in the book of Romans, that the law was weakened by the flesh. Romans chapter 7 says the law is good and righteous and holy. So the, the problem is not with the law itself, but because the law, weak as it is through the flesh, it cannot produce the justification that we so desperately need. Now you see why in the book of Hebrews the author is so admonishing the people not to go back to the old covenant. 
He's admonishing not to return to the old place because that system is impotent. That system is incomplete. That system is, uh, is imperfect. That system has been surpassed by something better. Something better has come. If you turn to the old covenant, you're doing two things. You're going back to an imperfect system that cannot justify, can make nothing perfect. It cannot sanctify. It cannot, it ca- cannot make the worshiper holy. And you are turning your back on the fullness of Jesus Christ. You're turning your back on the, on the fact that his sacrifice is perfect. The, the perfection of his sacrifice, chapter 10, verse 14. One sacrifice perfects people for all time. You're also going back on his, you're going back to an old mediator that is no longer in force. That is Moses. And now you're turning your back on the better mediator, chapter 8, verse 6. And you're also turning your back on the perfection of Jesus' sanctifying blood. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 10, how much trouble are you in? If you turn your back on the blood of Jesus, you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble. Because it's not like the old covenant. We're talking about the blood of the sinless, spotless Son of God. And if you dare to trample underfoot His blood, how much more severe will the punishment be for those who count the blood of the covenant a common thing? Why is apostasy so dangerous and so perilous? I just recently got news of a friend who is in trouble apostatizing, apparently, a good friend who is um, entrenched, ensnared, and deceived by sin. And it's devastating people all around him. And what he is doing, in essence, is he is counting the blood of the covenant a common thing. It's a common thing. What Jesus did on the cross, the gospel promises, they don't mean much. This girl means more than that. That's what you're saying when you're preferring sin to Christ. When you're going away from the glorious gospel and back to anything else. The book of Hebrews, if anything else, leaves us with one impression. There is nowhere to go. If you abandon Jesus, you are hopeless. You are lost. You are in a, you're in a terrible predicament. You're in the worst possible predicament a human could possibly be in because you are outside of everything that God has ordained for man's good. And what are you putting in its place? A girl? A boy? Money? A career? What is it? Jesus says, what will man give in exchange for his soul? This is our all, brothers and sisters. The book of Hebrews is about our all, the totality of everything. And therefore, we have to look at this final great and glorious thing, and that is that we draw near to God on the basis of Jesus' superior hope that he gives us. And I get that right out of verse 19. It says, the law made nothing perfect. That verse, by the way, for the law made nothing perfect, really should go with verse 18. 
because that's a parenthetical statement. And um, Stephanus, who put the verses in the Bible, he didn't do a perfect job. He did a good job, but he didn't do a perfect job. I think that verse should have gone with verse 18. But anyway, we'll let Stephanus slide on that. <laughs> I'm sure he cares right now. But verse 19 goes on. It says, on the other hand, there is, a, there is a bringing in of a better hope. You see that? That's the way that we ought to be talking about the gospel. That's the way that we ought to be talking about the new covenant. It is a better hope, superior hope, the supremacy of the hope of Jesus. This is not just quoting John Piper now. This is the Bible, <laughs> right? This is the supremacy of the hope that we have in the new covenant. And says, why? Because, look at it, because we, through this better hope, we draw near to God. We have access, in other words. We're given access. Oh, yes, the old covenant people of God, they had access, a remnant anyway. There was a remnant of people in the old covenant that had access to God, salvifically speaking. In the new covenant, all of the people in the new covenant have access to God, right? What does Jeremiah say? Jeremiah 31, he says, no longer will you tell people, know the Lord. They will all know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. And that's talking about the covenant community. That's not talking about universalism. That's not saying the Canaanites know the Lord. <laughs> that's not saying that the Philistines now all know the Lord. No, 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 no. That's talking about those who are in the new covenant covenant. And so those who are in the new covenant, that is synonymous in the New Testament with being converted, being saved, being justified, being a child of God, being a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a believer, somebody who is saved through Jesus Christ, someone who has trusted, a saint of God. He, she is in the new covenant. And because of that, we have this glorious hope that we can draw near to God, which means we have access to unestimable benefit. Because drawing near to God means, very practically, that you and I can go to God with our trouble. You and I have access to God. We can go to Him in our time of despair, in our time of doubt, in our time of condemnation, in our time when we are uh, uh, in a season where we are beat down and discouraged, even as Paul was. Oh, don't you think Paul was so thankful for the new covenant on the mission field? When he says in 2 Corinthians, I think it's in chapter Six, he says, we are depressed. I can't think of the Apostle Paul sitting somewhere depressed, can you? Because I've been depressed. You've been depressed? Some people, I, I, I could just, I, I could almost say, don't know what depression really is, but I've been depressed. And I can see Paul in some corner of the Roman world, maybe in a cell, maybe in a dungeon. I visited one of his cells in Caesarea by the sea in Israel. I saw possibly one of the little holes they might have stuck him in. You could get depressed down there. Matter of fact, they would say that Paul was probably in one of the cells where everything, including the sewage and the rats and the disease, everything would drain down there where he was for the gospel. And therefore, he says, I was depressed. Can you blame him? I get depressed because my AC's not working. I get depressed because the AC in the Sunday school's out. I'll go home tonight thinking about that. Paul 
has a reason to be depressed. I do not. But depression is real. Even if it's high or low, it's still real. And what drawing near to God means, what the new covenant means, is that you have access in that instant or when you're filled with fear, when you're gripped and overwhelmed with anxiety, senseless anxiety, when you're overwhelmed with anxious fears and you don't know a way out of it, remember, remember, the most important person you need to draw near to at that moment is not the television, people on TV. It is not an author in a book, though that's helpful. It is not a pastor. It's not even your spouse or your parents. It is God. And thanks be to Jesus that through him we have the victory and we have the access that we need to get to the presence of God. We get to the presence of God through him. Turn with me finally to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, because we should always walk away from a sermon thinking, okay, how do I take all that stuff that Pastor Miller was yelling about today, and how do I do something with it? Well, again, I'm going I'm I'm to answer that through exegesis, sorry. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, because this is as practical as it gets. Therefore, since we have a, high, a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, right? So in light of the work of Christ, what do we do? First and foremost, don't lose center. Don't lose your grounding. Be, don't, don't lose your conviction, your confession. In other words, do not lose your grip on the gospel, And then he says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because we have this great sympathetic high priest, let us draw near. There's that same language, different word, same idea. Let us draw near, watch this now, with confidence. My friends, let me tell you something. This confidence here is something you'd be hard-pressed to find in the Old Covenant. You search around for it. Where do people in the Old Covenant, where do they have this boldness? You could translate the word boldness. Draw near. Lord, I come to you right now in Jesus' name. That's what I mean by boldness. No, 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 no. If you were in the Old Covenant, you were like, well, you know, let's say you were with the family. Well, sweetheart, you know, Isaac, you know, you, everybody named their kids biblical names, right? Isaac, Jacob, you know, we got to go to the temple. You got to hold on. You know, we're going to go take our sacrifices. You got to go through the whole cultus. But now we have this newfound confidence to the throne of grace. See, the throne is not in an earthly temple anywhere. It is, it is spiritual, which means forget about geography, You could be on your deathbed, baby, and be communing with the living God. You don't need a tent. You don't need a temple. You don't need a priest. You don't need a a robe. You don't need an incense. You don't need an altar. You can do it in the quietness and the secret place of your heart where Almighty God is ready to meet with you as long as you come to Him by faith. It doesn't get any more practical than that. And practically speaking, we need exactly what verse 16 says because look what it says. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't know about you, 
but I would characterize myself as an incredibly needy person. And my wife could attest to that in many, many different ways. I'm a very needy person, especially spiritually, even if I don't know it. I need God more than I can ever conceive of any um, of myself. I need him more than I even know. I need him more than even I can sing about. I need him more than I can preach about. I need God more than anything else in this world. The glorious good news of the new covenant is that the, the supply of grace that we have is a super abundant supply. You ever go to Costco and they don't have what you're looking for? You ever go to the store and the one thing you went there to get, they're out of? The grace that you need, the grace that you hope for, will never run dry. God's grace is always there for you. This is the work of our high priest, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you're so gracious to us. We don't deserve it. Quite to the contrary, what the old covenant teaches us more than anything is how much we deserve the opposite, which is condemnation. If anything that the old covenant teaches is that in and of ourselves, oh God, we have no right, no authority to come into your presence. And so we thank you today, Lord, for Jesus Christ, the great high priest, the shepherd of the sheep, the captain of our salvation, the, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the apostle of our confession, Jesus Christ, who has opened up a new and living way, the portal to paradise. Thank you for your son. And help us, therefore, as men and women in this church, to go deep with you, to esteem your presence as that which we long for, like we, like we read earlier today, as the deer pants after the water brook, so my soul pants after you. God, give us longing. Give us a heart that longs for your presence always. We're so grateful for you, Lord. You will satisfy the longing of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.